0: Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse number 1, <clears> the <throat> Bible says, For every office, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also... Is compassed with infirmity. So, of course, the writer here is talking about the high priest and the benefit of having a high priest that understood the 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 problem with sin. Paul Connor, which friend i not pay attention to here, right here. All right, sorry, parenting done. <laughs> So, the high priest, he's talking about the, the benefit of having a high priest that understood the infirmities of men, that understood uh, what it was like to struggle, to deal with temptation, to have, have difficulties, have trials, have sickness, have these things that man has to deal with, because the high priest's job. Was to go to God on behalf of man. So they're like, it's it's a it's a privilege and it's a good thing to have a high priest that understands your infirmities. And look, that's true in anything. That's why I I I despise uh, the the thought that you know pre, men of God and preachers of God and ministry people they're they're uh, they're super Christians. They're above reproach. No, we're not. Uh, There's a lot of troubles we deal with. We have the same struggles, the same same infirmities everyone else does. So he's talking about the the benefit of having a high priest that understands what it's like to deal with temptation. To understand what it's like to deal with the sins of the world. Look at verse 3. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taken this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God... And was Aaron. So he's saying the high priest is not a job they apply for. It was a position granted to them by God. Verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then skip over to Hebrews chapter 7. Nope. All right. I didn't put that on there because it's a long one. We're going to read chapter 7 through verse 27. So just read along. Don't look at the screen. Look at your Bible. Look at your phone. Look at your tablet. As long as you've got the Bible open. If you've got Angry Birds or something else, don't look at it. Only look at it with the Bible. Okay, so it's chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So at the end of chapter number 5, he mentioned this, this priest, Melchizedek. And now in chapter 7, he's explaining who Melchizedek was and the importance of Melchizedek and his relationship to Christ. And I know he skipped over chapter 6 because in chapter 6, he's ranting and raving about the need for us to have spiritual maturity. And if we were spiritually mature, we would understand this thing about Melchizedek. So we'll look at that next time. But so in chapter 7, he starts explaining who Melchizedek is. He goes, He's the king of Salem. He's the king of righteousness. Has no father, has no mother, has no beginning, has no end. And so it's a, this, this Melchizedek character is a very interesting character. Verse number nine, four. <clears throat> now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. "...but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promise." So Melchizedek, who didn't have descent from them, he received tithes of Abraham. Verse 7, "...and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And, there, and here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom he has, it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes of Abraham." For he is yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under the people received the law, what further need was, was there for another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. So we'll see this in Psalms later. But David says that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a king after the order of Melchizedek instead of after the order of Aaron. Aaron, of course, was the first high priest, and all priests came out of the tribe of Levi. And so they're saying, <coughs> why would we say that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek instead of a priest after the order of Aaron? Because there's a difference ...between the earthly priests that they had through Aaron and through Levi... ...and the great high priest we have through Christ our Messiah. So let's continue reading, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe... ...of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it was evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah... ...of which the tribe of Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood... And it is yet far more evident that for after that the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a cardinal commandment but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and for the unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect but by the bringing in of of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. Inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. Talking about Jesus here in Melchizedek. For those priests were made without an oath, but this is an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly... "...were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continued ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he liveth, ever liveth, and making intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens." who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the peoples, for this he did once when he offered up himself, for the law maketh him high priest, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Y'all catch all that? It's a lot, I know. A lot going on in those those verses there. A lot going on in that that chapter number 7 talking about Melchizedek. Now in chapter number 5, the writer of Hebrews brings up this character, Melchizedek. And he is a obscure character, to say the least. He's an Old Testament character. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, his story takes up three verses <clears throat> in the book of Genesis. And unless you've really been in church for a while or studied the Bible, you probably don't know a whole lot about this Melchizedek guy. He, he's not a Bible character we make flannel graphs about. There's no veggie tale story about Melchizedek. He's just he's kind of an obscure character that we don't know a whole lot about. He didn't kill any giants. He didn't make any walls fall down. He didn't kill thousands of Philistines with with the jawbone of a donkey. But the book, book of Hebrews tells us that this character, Melchizedek, teaches us some very important truths about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says that understanding Melchizedek and how he points to Christ is a sign of spiritual maturity. So Melchizedek, the Bible tells us, was an Old Testament priest, and automatically sometimes that makes us tune out. Because we, we don't understand, really, the Old Testament priesthood because we're not under the, the priestly system anymore. We're not under the, the law anymore. We're under grace now. So we don't really have to know about the priest system and the sacrificial system. And so when we start talking about Old Testament priests, a lot of us just like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. And we kind of stop listening. While we're no longer under the priestly system, there are a lot of things expressed in that system that apply to us today. The Israelites felt they had a need for something or for someone to represent them before God. They knew that there was separation between them... And God, and they needed someone to go to God on their behalf. And God had told them this from the very beginning. And God had promised a Messiah to come and go to God on their behalf. But until that Messiah came, until he, the fulfillment of the gospel had happened, they needed someone or something to go to God to kind of justify them before God, to, to, to atone for their sins while they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And this goes all the way back. To the Garden of Eden. Of course, in the Garden of Eden before the fall, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Now that they were they were unashamed because they had nothing to be ashamed of. They were clothed in the love and righteousness of God. They were completely sinless. They were perfect. They and so they were they were these sinless. Uh, creatures that God, humans that God had created, sin had not come in yet, they had not fallen yet, they had a free will, but they had not chosen to rebel against God yet, so they were clothed in God's righteousness and God's love, but then they sinned. Then they rejected God. And the Bible says as soon as they sinned, as soon as sin entered their heart, they realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. Now they were naked before, but they were unashamed, and now they're naked and they're, they're ashamed of it. So what do they do? They try to cover their sins. They try to cover their shame. And since then, man has been trying to cover his shame since since the, the fall of mankind. All religion does is give us a way to feel like we are covering our shame. Like we are hiding our shame. We are trying to cover our nakedness before God. and So the priestly system, the sacrificial system, it gave the Israelites that feeling. A feeling of covering their shame, a feeling of, 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 of being justified before God, a feeling worthy. That's what we want to show. That's why we want to show that there's something about us that makes our lives worthy. Every one of us wants to make our lives seem more, more valuable, makes, wants to, to make sure our lives are worthy. We need, every one of us, we need some form of external validation. The Bible tells us that the reason we seek validation is because we have a sense of our separation from God. We have a need for someone or something to go between us and God and reestablish our worthiness in his eyes. And that's why Melchizedek is so important to understand. So there are two things I want to show tonight about Melchizedek. Here's the first one. Who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek is only mentioned two times in the Bible other than here in the book of Hebrews. And here in Hebrews is the most we hear about him. It's the most we learn about him. (coughs) First time he's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 14 verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Lomar, And the kings that were with him in the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale, and Melchizedek... King of Salem, brought forth bread... And wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. So here's the story here. Abraham has gone out and he's he's defeated the, the kings of Sodom because they came in and invaded and they took Lot captive. And so Abraham's gone in and he's he's recaptured his, his he's brought back his relatives and he's freed the people of Sodom and he's had this great victory, and it was an incredible victory, and it was all of God because Abraham he was a shepherd, he wasn't a warrior. So he took a bunch of shepherds and defeated several kings in the veil, and so just an incredible victory. And now Abraham is looking for some someone who represents God to thank, to, to give praise to, to kind of praise God for what's happened. And here comes Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. Now, interesting is Salem, of course, means peace, and Jerusalem is new Salem, new peace. So Salem was, it's, was old Salem, now it's new Salem. But biblical, uh, a philosopher, uh, biblical philosophers and, and, and people who study the Bible and even historians there's no record of a city called Salem. So he's a city of a play. He's a king of a city that doesn't exist right now. But there's a new Jerusalem later. So there's a new Salem. And then there's a new New Salem. You know, New Jerusalem is new New Salem. So I guess in the, that's in the, we'll talk about that later. <coughs> that's nothing to do with anything. But anyway, so here he comes Melchizedek. And he brings bread and wine to Abraham. What, is, what does that sound like? What else do we use Bread and, we'll say, wine for the Lord's Supper. So he's, he's having the Lord's Supper with Abraham before it's ever been instituted. So here comes Melchizedek. He brings bread and wine to Abraham. And then we continue. <coughs> he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and he blessed the Most High God, which he had delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So Abraham... He meets Melchizedek and he thanks him and he kind of he's kind of going, he's he's going to this king of the most high God to give praises so he can give it to, to God, so he can go to God on his behalf. And Abraham tithes a tenth of what he received back to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, it's interesting here because he was a king, but he was also the priest of the most high God. And he he seems to come out of nowhere. Even Hebrews tells us he has no lineage. He has no beginning, has no end, has no father, has no mother. We know know nothing about him. We don't know where he came from. After this, we don't know where he went. He's mentioned here in Genesis. That's his story. And then he vanishes. And after this, he disappears, and we don't hear about him again for another thousand years. And that's when David, in the Psalms, mentions a prophecy about Melchizedek. Psalms 110, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the the prophecy that was quoted in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 that the writer quoted saying, Hey, remember when David said that Jesus, the Messiah, would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Not a priest after the order of Aaron, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So who was Melchizedek? He was the king. He was a priest of the Most High God. He met with Abraham. Abraham paid tithes to him, and the Messiah would be a priest like him. So that's all we know. That brings us to our second question. And this, don't get excited, I know we're on point two, but this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Second question: What does Melchizedek teach us about Jesus? Why is he so important that the book of the writer of Hebrews takes an entire chapter to talk about Melchizedek. He's got to have some meaning to us. He's got to have some, some, some thing we can learn from. Now, the stories of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, they point to Christ. His story's small, it's just three verses long, but even though it's brief, the Hebrews, Hebrew writer identifies the story of Melchizedek as an important story that teaches us some things about Christ. One of the greatest things about the Old Testament is the fact (coughs) that it is all woven together and everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, it is one story, one person that the Bible is taught is pointing to, and we see him in every story. We see him in the blood that the that the Jews had to put on the doorpost for the first Passover. We see him when he delivers them through the Red Sea. We see him in the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, and those who looked to the serpent would look and live. We see him in the city of refuge in Numbers chapter 35. We see him in the ark, and those that were saved who came inside the ark. Every story, every character, everything in the Bible points to Jesus. So Melchizedek points to Christ. So what do we know about Melchizedek that teaches us some things about Christ? Well, one thing is just like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king and a priest. Look at seven, verse 7, chapter 14. <clears throat> For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which try moses spake no- nothing concerning Priesthood. One of the most interesting things about Melchizedek was he was a king and a priest. No one else in Scripture holds these two titles except Jesus. In the Old Testament, you could not hold both titles. You couldn't be the king and the priest. You couldn't be the priest and the king. The king was a lawgiver. The king was a judge. The priest was a friend. The priest was a counselor who could sympathize with the people in their hurts. The king represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. And they never combined these offices. You could not be a king and a priest because no one person could do both. No one person could be a judge and a friend. No one person could, could pass judgment on people's sins and people's crimes and have mercy and offer sacrifice for them because of the sins. No one could do the exact same thing. Melchizedek was the only exception. The next was Jesus. Another thing we know is all the priests came out of the tribe of Levi. But Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14 tells us Jesus came out of the tribe of Judah. Judah was a tribe of kings. How can Jesus rule with perfect justice as king, and sympathize us with perfect mercy and understand our weaknesses as our priest. How can he do both? Because of the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus can judge our skin, be a perfect judge, and also show perfect mercy. The cross was where the absolute justice of God met the fullness of his mercy. In Genesis, we have a story about Joseph and his brothers. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. Joseph, of course, is the <coughs> favorite of his his father Jacob, and everybody knows it. His brother knows it, and J- Joseph knows it. And so he's kind of exerting his favorite son uh, power sometimes, and his brothers get sick of it, and they say, "You know what? We're going to do. We're going to we're going to sell him into slavery." Now, be honest. you, you really got to hate somebody to have that that go through your mind. I mean, look, I grew up with four brothers and a sister, or three brothers and a sister, and I didn't like them a lot of the times. There were times I wished they would leave, but I never wanted to sell them to slavery. I never never actually wanted, I'd say, I'm going to kill you, but I never actually wanted to kill them. But Joseph's brothers actually wanted to kill him. But they thought, you know what, Why, why kill him? We can make some money off of him. So they sell him into slavery. Joseph ends up as, after years in God working his life, he ends up as prime minister over Egypt. His brothers think he's dead. They sold him to slavery 20 years ago by. Joseph's dead. We're never going to see him again. They've dealt with the guilt. They're fine. But they they think he's gone. Well, a famine has to land. And Egypt's the only place that has food. So Joseph's brothers come down to, to Egypt to get some food. And Joseph sees him and he recognizes him. He knows right away that that's who it is. They don't recognize him. He's got his little... Egyptian ruler hat on. He's, he's probably wearing eyeliner because that's what he did in those days with little weird times. But, so he's got a shaved head. He, he looks Egyptian. So they see Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. They think he's just the prime minister. As they come and they, they ask for food and Joseph gives him food. But he, he wants to see if they've changed before he reveals himself. So he takes one of his cups, an expensive gold silver cup and he hides it in Benjamin's, his youngest brother's bag. They leave and then Joseph sends the police out to arrest him. And so they're, they, pull him, they pull him over, search their car, search their donkeys, find the cup, bring him back. Joseph accused Benjamin, says, you're a thief. And he sentences him to death. He says, you've stolen from me, you have to die. Judah, the brother who wanted to sell him to sell to slavery, the brother that got rid of Joseph, steps up and says, I will die in his place. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. We were under the penalty of sin. We were condemned to die guilty and deserving death. Now, Benjamin was innocent, but we weren't innocent. We were deserving of death. We deserved the punishment God had placed in our life, but Jesus came and said, I will die in their place. And so he, he dies on the cross for our sins. He sheds his blood. He's buried in the grave. Three days later, he rises again, redeeming us to God the Father and becoming our perfect high priest that understands our infirmities. He, he As king, he judged our sins on the cross. As our high priest, he offers us mercy and salvation so he can be He, our priest and our king. Now he can relate to us with mercy. Now he can relate to us with acceptance without compromising his his justice. He is our king and our priest. But also, he is our perfect priest. Look at verse number 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him... See he ever liveth and maketh intercession for them. One of the, 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 the jobs of the high priest was to go before God on behalf of the, the Israelites. Once a year, the high priest, well, every day, the high priest, Bible told us this in Hebrews, every day the high priest would have to offer sacrifices for his own sins before he could deal with the sins of the rest of Israel. But one day a year, Israel would come together and they would slaughter, they, every family would slaughter a lamb and they would take the blood. and the high priest would go before God. He would enter the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat of God was, and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, atoning for the sins of Israel for one year, covering their sins for a year. But he was the one who went to God on their behalf. He made intercession for God, to God, on behalf of Israel. Jesus, when he died and was buried and rose again, he paid that sin debt forever. He went up into heaven. While, you know, so people say, what was he doing in those three days? He... He was going into heaven and taking his blood and putting it on the mercy seat in heaven and atoning for our sins once and for all. And So now our high priest, Jesus, he makes intercession for us to God the Father every single moment of every single day. He stands before God holding his finished work of salvation up before the Father on our behalf. God speaks to us now with the justice and truth of a king and the grace and mercy of a priest. And we need both. We need truth, we need justice, but we also need mercy and grace. Grace. See, truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth is liberalism. We don't need God telling us our sins are okay. We don't need God telling us our sins aren't a big deal, Jesus paid the price, your sins aren't that bad because they are a big deal. Our sins are are important. We do need to deal with them. They are a huge deal. Sin brought the curse of death to mankind. Sin sends people to hell. Sin hung Jesus Christ on the cross. And because we are sinners, we need a God who can deal with our messed up sinful lives without judgment. And Jesus can do both because he died in our place and he took the judgment for our sins. That means God, when God speaks truth to us, He does so with grace because he understands our pain, he understands our hurt, he understands our temptation. The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. We think, man, Jesus, he does, he's God, he's perfect, he doesn't understand what I'm going through. Yeah, he does, because yes, he is 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Yes, he dealt with temptation, he dealt with pain, he was betrayed, he had people turn their back on, and he was rejected by his friends. He, he had the tempt, every temptation we deal with, Jesus faced, but he didn't sin, so he understands what we go through. He's a better high priest because he has perfect judgment, but he also has perfect grace And mercy as well. Jesus suffered our loneliness. Jesus suffered our pain. He suffered our abandonment. So now he he hears us with sympathy and he treats us with kindness. Jesus is our priest and king and the Bible says he can save anyone anywhere. Look at verse number 3 in chapter 7. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days, nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. And look at verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe of Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood, and it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Look at verse 23. (coughs) And they truly... Were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man because he continued with forever hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, to, that come to, unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth and make an intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. The problem with all the other high priests was that they were all Jewish, so they could only represent Jewish people. They didn't offer up sacrifices for Gentiles. They only offered up sacrifices for Jews. But because Melchizedek has no recorded genealogy, we don't know what family line he belongs to. And that's interesting because in the Old Testament, I mean, the Old Testament is all about genealogies. I mean, there are, there's seven chapters in the Old Testament that all it is is begatting people. He begat, him, he begat him, he begat him, and so it's all about genealogies. There are Bible charts where you can, you can trace by, you know, people that knew that you can trace their genealogy all the way back to Adam. Man, the Bible is big about genealogy, but then we have Melchizedek, a very important figure. I know he's got a brief story, but he's a very important figure who we have no idea where he came from. We don't know what family line he's part of. He's obviously not part of the, the, the uh, Jewish tribe because he's with Abraham and there are no tribes yet. But we don't know who he came from. We don't know if he's a Jew or a Gentile. We know he's the king of the Most High God, but we don't know anything about him. So that means he can represent anyone just like Jesus. In verse 3 again, it talks about having no father, no mother. The other problem they had with their, is their own sins. They had to deal with their own sins, and they died. Look at verse 23 again. They truly were priests because they were suffered to continue by reason of death. He goes, another problem with the high priests of the Old Testament was they're all dead. They didn't live forever. Melchizedek tells us in verse 3, he had no beginning or no end. Jesus had no beginning or no end. Now, there's a lot of debate about who Melchizedek really was. A lot of people say he's a Christophany. He's a, a type of Christ that he just represented Jesus. And when it says he had no beginning and no end, it's talking metaphorically. Personally, I believe Melchizedek was Jesus. I believe it was an Old Testament appearance of God where God came down to Abraham and Abraham got to worship God and pay tithes to God and spend time with God. And so I think, he, I think when it says he had no beginning and no end, many didn't because he was Jesus. He was God in the flesh coming before the, the birth. But the other, sin, other priests, they died, and they also had their other sins to deal with. See, Jesus didn't have any of those problems. He was sinless, and while he did die, he rose again, and he lives in heaven today. He is eternal. He has no beginning or no end. The writer says that because of that, he is able to save anyone who draws near to him. See, Jesus didn't die for a certain group of people. The cross is sufficient for all sinners. The Old Testament priests, they offered sacrifices for the Jewish people. Jesus offered himself a sacrifice for the world. He is able to save anyone, anywhere. His death... His burial and His resurrection is sufficient to pay the price for our sins and remove the penalty of sin to everyone who believes. His power is able to heal and restore the most damaged person. See, God can save anybody. We just have to accept His gift of salvation. And because of all this, the Bible tells us Jesus deserves to be first and and foremost in our life and receive our best. Look at verse 4 again. (coughs) Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of all his spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descendant, descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him, and had the promises, and without all contribution, the less is, all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. See, the Bible tells us that because Jesus is a better Melchizedek, because he is a better high priest, because he is our king and our priest, because he's done all this for us, he deserves the very best of our life. After Abraham had won the battle against the kings of Sodom, he looked for someone on God's behalf to pay tithes to because he knew the victory wasn't because of him. The victory wasn't because of his ability. It was because of God's power and he was looking for someone to thank. So he tithed to Melchizedek. He was thanking this picture of Jesus Christ, the king and high priest for the victory. In the same way those of us who have been saved by, the, by Jesus should thank him and give the first and best to him. The first and best of what God gives should always belong to God. It's called the first fruits of our blessings. Look, the tithe is a great place to start. You know, they, they mention tithe a lot in there. You know, I can't get away without mentioning tithe. Because the Bible mentions tithe. Because it shows your heart. You know why Abraham, and look, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before the law. Tithe wasn't in effect now. He was thanking God for the blessings he'd been given. That's all your tithe did, is thanking God for blessing you with everything he's blessed with. And the tithe is a good place to show our thanks to God. God but God doesn't just deserve the first of your money. He deserves a, the first and best of your time. First and be- Too many of us were faithful with writing that check every week. Every two weeks, every month, whenever you get paid, we're faithful writing in that check. But we don't give God any time during the week. God deserves the best of our time. Now, look, I know a lot of people, they'll say, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, you need to read your Bible and pray. Look, I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I need to do is drink coffee. If I'm reading my Bible and praying, I ain't, I ain't understanding anything. I mean, even up here, I've had to, I'm having to pull my Bible up here because the words are blurry right there. That's news for me. I don't understand that. But in the morning, I'm one eye open, and Jesus said, I can understand nothing. I need some, that's not the best of my time. So you need to find a time in the day when you're, you're alert. You're not, you don't have distractions around you. Also in the morning, my kids are awake. The dogs need to go out. There's a lot going on. That's not my best time. It may be your best time. You need to find the best time in your day. You can spend time with God. And look, it doesn't have to be, and I've even heard preachers talk about, you know, you got 24 hours in a day, so you got to spend 2.4 hours with God. That's getting a little legalistic, in my opinion. It, it can be just a couple minutes. Read your Bible for a few minutes, pray for a few minutes, and go on about it. But give God the best of your day. Worship God. Give God the best of your talents. Some of you, you've been given incredible talents by God, and you're not using it for him. You're using it for your own. And look, I'm not saying if God gave you a great talent, don't use it to, to benefit yourself. Yes, but also use it for God. We're giving the best of our money, the best of our tithe, the best of our talents, the best of our time. Have we done that with our money, with our talents, or with our time? God, as our priest and king, deserves the best from us. And Melchizedek is an interesting figure we see in the Old Testament. But he, he tells us a lot about Jesus. He's our king and our priest. He understands our pain he understands our hurts, he understands our trials, and he sympathizes with us. He is able to save anyone, anywhere, and he deserves the first and best of everything that we've been blessed with. Jesus is our better Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,